It is an exciting day because it's Palm Sunday. It's, it's Passion Sunday. We, we take a break from where we're at to focus in on these, this next week, uh, this uh, time in our history when Jesus experienced his last week, his last few days, last few hours on earth, at least before he died. And we know the end of the story, but that's coming next Sunday. Palm Sunday. Palm branches. Maybe, maybe you're here like, what is all this about? I've kind of know the story. I've seen this before. I've seen the artwork through this time of year leading up to Easter. I want to read from you John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. And this is Jesus coming into the city and something interesting happens. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees And went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what they're doing is uh, prompting a king. What they're doing is representative of what you do for a king entering the city. And it says this, verse 14, here's where it's interesting. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. Sitting on a donkey's colt. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Here in John chapter 12, we see the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into the city on a donkey. And it's very, very purposeful. Because you have hundreds of years of Israel's histories of God writing the scriptures, preparing their hearts for a Messiah. And there are many things that were written down to expect and to look forward and to know that this is your king. And one of those happens in Zechariah 9, where this day is foretold to Jerusalem and the daughters of Zion that their king is coming. And how is he coming? Sitting on a donkey. How would you expect a king to come into the city? I asked my, my daughters this, and they, they gave me two immediate answers right off the top of their head. Well, I would expect them to be on a horse, right? Right, lifted up. Royalty, important. Or one of my other daughters immediately said, or someone carrying him, right? A king, a king's worthy of a, a king's entrance. But then you have Jesus still in his raggedy clothes, grabs a colt, grabs a donkey, and he he rides in on the city and the children are shouting and palm branches are being thrown down and everyone's coming in and of course the the uh jewish leaders are getting furious at this because they're calling a king they're 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 saying he's fulfilling this prophecy and what's interesting the disciples they're not even thinking about their scriptures that have been preparing for this day it says it wasn't till later that they understand and remember oh yeah jesus coming in on the donkey was like what the old testament said our king, church, Jesus Christ, the king of Israel, king of your individual life, your master, your savior, your king. But, but you'll see that it's titled today, the unexpected king. The unexpected king. Because we know the story. God's people rejected him. John tells us in his gospel, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because he didn't do what they wanted him to do. or He didn't do what they expected the Messiah 
to do when he showed up. Put an end to the Roman oppression. Be that general. Strike down the the evil leaders of the day and restore Israel and Jerusalem back to its rightful power and rule the world with the Messiah as king. He didn't quite do that and the people rejected him. Now let's talk about expectations. Expectations is the theme today. What about expectations is so interesting or important? Well, expectations that are wrong expectations are detrimental. Expectations that are wrong expectations are detrimental. I'll give you some examples. You've You've seen young couples who get married and they have all these expectations, right? It's impossible to avoid expectations, but the the husband has spent his whole life expecting what marriage would be like and the wife has spent her whole life expecting what marriage would be like and then this glorious day comes, they've been anticipating it for so long, they say, I do, they get married and it doesn't take long, right, for them to start understanding and being confronted with, I'm not meeting my expectations that I've been looking forward to for so long. And then what begins to happen in the heart of each one of them, right? Then they begin to think something's wrong with the marriage, but really what they're understanding is this is what it's like when you hold on and you have expectations and you look forward to them and then they're not met. The issue isn't what's actually going on. The issue is the misplaced expectation. My kids, sometimes I take them to DeBoer. Thank God no good thing will he pull from them that walk uprightly. It is a beautiful, blessed place and God gives these blessed maple bacon donuts. I swear they're wonderful. And you believe me, I want to go every morning and get a maple bacon donut. But we can't go every other, every morning. And I know it. The morning that we're not going to go and my daughters expect to go, that like the ride to school is like, whew, it's going to be a rough one. But every other ride to school is nice when they're not expecting donuts, right? right so so what's, what's, what's the actual pain here? Is the pain that the donuts weren't received or that the expectation wasn't fulfilled? You see where I'm getting at this? Plenty of expectations in life and expectations can be interesting. When it comes to the Messiah, there was an expectation. God had set up expectations. And today we're gonna go travel back about 2,700 years ago for us and about 700 years before Jesus to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And we're gonna see just why Jesus was the king that the people did not expect. Now, if you look on your, your uh, bulletin, you'll see there's like a lot there. Today's a little different. We're just walking through the passage and we're, we're filling things in as we're going. And the whole goal today, the whole goal is to get a greater understanding of our God, his plan, and our king, and to appreciate and love him more just what God has done for us. So this is a sit back, relax, and let your mind be open to the glories of God in his Messiah. Isaiah chapter 53. It was actually read earlier by a couple of you. And we're going to talk today about the expectations that were not met. Why, why, you'll see it on the screen, Jesus the king was not what his people expected. Let me give you some backdrop to Isaiah 53. We're going to read something that took place 700 years before Jesus, but it's written in the past tense. 700 years before Jesus, written in the past tense, and it's written from the perspective of someone very specific. So as we read this, you need to take the position of an Israelite who has come to expect, 
who has come to believe in and put their faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah. And now these are the words that they are proclaiming to the rest of their people after that they have come and believed in this Messiah whom they have rejected. Now, this is the beautiful artistry and poetic nature of God that only God could write and not mankind. It's one of these moments, just like Psalm 22, when something is foretold and prophesied that so early, that so before crucifixion, and it's set up in such a way that the mind, if you allow your mind to understand this, it is phenomenal. Think about it. 700 years before Jesus, and we're gonna read the response of someone coming to believe in Jesus who's rejected him for so long. So now Isaiah 53 becomes a present day experience, especially of an Israelite who's rejected Jesus as Messiah that comes to believe in him. And now these are the present day natural words that would bubble up out of their soul and come out. It's a beautiful picture. It's great irony here too, and we will see that. Isaiah 53, I hope you're there. Jesus, the king, was not what his people expected. First, because this, because his story was unbelievable. His story was unbelievable. Isaiah 53, one says, who has believed what, we, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the Lord whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Remember, an Israelite who's just believing, who's, who's coming to grips with the Messiah, and he says this, who has believed what he's, who in the world has believed what they've heard from us? I talked to my brothers, I talked to my fellow Jewish people, my fellow Israelites, and I try to tell them this, and they don't believe it. Why? Because the story is unbelievable, as in it's hard to accept these things. It's hard to accept that this was the expectation of the Messiah. Hard to accept that Jesus, whom we've rejected our whole life, is the Messiah. His story is unbelievable. Now, allegedly, Isaiah 53 today in the synagogues amongst rabbis in the Jewish community is allegedly called the forbidden chapter. And you can see people who go through Israel as Christians and they try to read this, this chapter to people and they say they've never heard it before. And the rumor is, the report is, is the reason that they no longer read this in the synagogues is because it's so wonderfully and naturally and instantly makes people think of Jesus Christ. And they ask, who is this talking about? And they will say, Jesus Christ. And allegedly, it has been not removed from their scripture, but removed from being uh, attention, being given to it as the Messiah. Or they try to dismiss it and say, it's not about the Messiah. The story and the plan that God has wrought for his people is unbelievable in the sense that it's hard for them to believe and accept. His story was unbelievable. It says here, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the power and the salvation of God revealed to who? His people, the Jews. And it's not what they expected. The salvation and the arm of the Lord always came in power, right? You put down like, you know, your, your plows and you, you, you beat them into swords and you, you destroy the enemy, right? Well, God's destroying the enemy, but he's destroying a different enemy than what they were expecting and doing it in a way that they didn't expect. A, a, a story that could not be made up by us because our own expectations would write a completely different story. The king that was coming, hard to accept, hard to understand that this was the plan from the beginning. His story is unbelievable. Next, we see this, verse two. Why was Jesus not the king that they expected? Because his resume was unimpressive. 
what resume would you expect a king to have? A Messiah. Your Messiah who you've waited hundreds of years before. What type of family background would he come from? What would he be like? What would be the dirt from which he would grow as a, as a tree that would stand strong as the oaks in the land? It says here, verse two, for he grew up before him, for he, Jesus, grew up before him, God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. You read the book of Isaiah, you find this imagery of this, this tree, Israel being cut and just the stump of Jesse being left and then, then this, this shoot starts to sprout from it. And the, the language in that day is this idea of, a, of a, a very weak type of plant that's growing in very weak ground, right? That's why, why he emphasizes here like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus, not the king that they expected because his resume was unimpressive. Isaiah here, this person saying, man, we looked at him. We saw, we saw the nothing family he came from with the nothing background he came from and the nothing place that he was raised in. We look at this resume of Jesus and we say, he can't be the Messiah. That's too unimpressive. It doesn't just end there. This Israelite who's come to believe now looking back on why he rejected talking to his people also admits that the reason his people didn't expect him was because his presence was repulsive to them. Verses three and four. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You, you see this, this Israelite? It's like he's talking to his fellow brothers. Like, man, look, it's like he's trying to convince them. Like, we, we treated him this way because this is what we thought he was. Despised and rejected by man. His presence was repulsive. It's not the presence of a king. If you're standing in the presence of a king, oh, oh, you just fall down. I, I want to feel a certain way when I stand before my king and my Messiah. And when I stood before Jesus and I saw his feet and I looked at his clothes and I looked at the crowd he was running with, I looked at the family he was from, I looked at the place he was from, nothing good can come out of Nazareth, right? This isn't my king. You see how expectations are already causing them to miss the thing that God was trying to do right before their eyes. Not what we expected. We expected his presence to be and feel completely different. And it says here, I mean, look at, listen to the words, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our Messiah is not going to be someone who's, who's described as a man of sorrows, filled with grief. Let me insert irony. The irony is, remember, we're reading something that was actually already prophesied about what the Messiah would be like. 700 years before. But we're expecting something different. Man of sorrows acquainted with grief or pain. And then look at this next description. And as one from whom men hide their faces. It'd be like on the streets of New York or Chicago or even here in the city and you see someone homeless and you forcefully keep yourself from connecting eyes with them, right? in the presence of someone that makes you uncomfortable. It's not the presence of a king. 
And then the person admits, we despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't do anything in our power to lift him up to the place he deserved to be because we didn't believe he was the king. And then he shifts here in verse four. It's like he can't, it's like he shifts and then he says this in verse four. Surely he has borne our grief. He was acquainted with sorrows and grief, but the grief was to bear our grief. He's, he's been, like Hebrew said, made into a man and now he can understand what life is like and has gone through what we've gone through, but also has borne in himself our grief. Do you see the perspective of an Israelite who's coming to believe, admitting how he used to think about Jesus, now trying to come with terms of what he really believes? Surely, now I see it. He has borne our grief and he's carried our sorrows. But we looked at him and said, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's like this anathema, tainted, cursed person that if you go next, you're gonna catch some of that. I don't want that. You're too, you're too depressed. It's too, it's too depressing here. A homeless Messiah doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Doesn't even have a father. Where's Joseph? Joseph died somewhere in his life. Couldn't the Messiah save his own father? Where's Joseph? Yet, we esteemed him stricken. His presence was repulsive to them. This is why they didn't expect Jesus the king and they missed him. The king was not what his people expected because, you know, his story is unbelievable. His resume is unimpressive. His presence was repulsive. But look at this. His purpose was self-sacrifice. Verses five and six. But, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. A Jewish person doesn't say that unless they they're believe it, right? So now this person is describing what, what, what actually his purpose was and what he actually was doing, but what they thought was actually happening, what he was being stricken by God and afflicted and someone who's not a king and not a Messiah and everything about his life proved to them that he wasn't. But now, now this person's believing and he's, he's talking to his fellow brothers and sisters and he's like, no, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities because that was his purpose all along was to come and be the lamb to be the guilt offering to be the sacrifice for sinful humanity let me ask you this you expect a king's purpose to be what not that maybe you expect the king to die sacrificially in battle as he wins victory which is actually what was happening with Jesus but it didn't seem that way to them His purpose was self-sacrifice, and it says this in verse six. As the Israelites talking to his fellow Israelites, trying to convince them to turn to the Messiah, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Making them think of the time of judges when people did what was right in their own eyes. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His purpose was self-sacrifice. His purpose was one of allowing himself to be crushed and put in our position and die the death that we deserve. What better story is there than this? And he did it for people that were mocking him and spitting on him and making fun of him. 
He does it still. That's still true even today for everyone on planet Earth, whether they're in a corrupt position of leadership or whether they're the lowliest of lowliest somewhere out in the bush, unable to be found and untouched by the rest of the world. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, past, present, and future, and all who look to him and believe in him will be saved. But only because of the sacrifice that he made in our half, because sin must be punished. We cannot sin and win. You cannot, we cannot live our life on planet earth however we want to die and expect not to face some type of judgment. And the Bible is clear from the beginning to end that judgment is coming. The wrath of God is laid on every single person on planet earth and Jesus says that we are condemned already. Not waiting to find out if we're gonna be condemned. Everyone's condemned and headed to experience the terrible, terrifying wrath of God. And God tells us, though, he's not willing, though, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in order for you and I to miss out on this wrath we deserve, answering for the way we've lived our life, for the thoughts we've had, the things we've done, and the things we've said, it must be punished. And in our hearts and in our souls, and we as people, the way we understand justice, it's written in the fabric of our being. We understand this. You hear a story about someone like Pedro Alonso Lopez, who was a serial killer that has been known to kill somewhere over between 300 and 400 women, has spent maybe 14 years in prison, got out on good behavior, and for all we know is somewhere in the world still doing his thing. He's probably not alive anymore. But we look at that and there's something inside of us that says justice hasn't been served. But the issue is we have to go that far to that Strevelin example to actually feel like something needs justice. We don't feel that a visceral response to us and our sins and our white lies and our gossip and our hatred and our outburst of wraths and our pornography and the things that we indulge in. All of these things are deserving punishment and the wrath that is coming upon mankind. We need a savior. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement upon him is what brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. You imagine a Jewish person spent their whole life hearing about Jesus, rejecting him, looking and trying to somehow make sense of why their Messiah, who their Messiah is, to come and have their eyes open and the scales drop from their eyes and to believe in Jesus and this to be awakened for them and then to read Isaiah 53 and see the wonder and the beauty of it and then them try to plead and beg with their brothers. We missed him. This is him. This is what he was doing the whole time. His purpose was self-sacrifice and he died for every single one of us. Yet we esteemed him stricken. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus the king was not what his people expected because his story was unbelievable. His resume was unimpressive. His presence was repulsive. His purpose was self-sacrifice. And look at this next one. His warfare, absent. Like the king, the Messiah. King comes in, he's like, he sits on the throne of David, right? David killed his, saw the thousands and David his tens of thousands, right? 
We're supposed to be looking to, we need someone like David, someone even better than David that would come and kill his hundreds of thousands, bring victory through warfare, right? No, but verse seven tells us what this king, how he responded to evil and mistreatment, how he defended himself or the lack thereof. Verse seven says this, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now think of Jesus with me. It's so hard not to just easily see Jesus in this. You go to the gospels and you read Jesus foretelling of this temple that would be resurrected, that would be destroyed, talking about his body, and he keeps hinting at the fact that he's going to die. We're in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, and we're here seeing Jesus saying he's leaving his disciples. They're like, what are you talking about? He knows his death is coming. And Jesus said this, no one, very important, no one takes my life from me. That's what Jesus said. He says, but I lay it down willingly. So when you see Jesus willingly allow himself to be betrayed and taken by his captors who who were led by Judas. Peter tries to start the warfare, right? Peter showing very much the expectation is you don't you don't put your you don't lay your hand on the Messiah. We're here and I'm gonna fight and he cut off the dude's ear, right? Jesus picks it up, puts the ear back on and says, You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And allowed himself to be taken freely. Allow himself to stand before uh, an erroneous trial allowed himself to, to be taken back and forth between officials and determined by all the Roman officials, totally innocent. Done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. And he allowed himself to be brought before the people, his own people who were looking out over him. And one final effort to try to get the people to calm down. Do you want Barabbas or you want Jesus? And they screamed for a murderer. And they scream for Jesus to be crucified. Beautifully poetic thing that's happening in the moment as we look back, but in the moment filled with rage and hatred for a man. Unjust, undeserved. And what did he do the whole time? What would you expect the Messiah to do if the Romans and his enemies are mistreating him? What would you expect them to do? Right, call down them 10,000 angels that Jesus talked about. Jesus had... He could have commanded the universe to just engulf everyone around them. But instead, he chose to be silent. Opened not his mouth, this says. And then you read the accounts of Jesus and Jesus is silent the whole time. Doesn't defend himself. Scripture says he when was reviled, he did not revile in return. Allowed for his beard to be ripped from his face, to be punched, to be hit in the head with sticks, to have a crown of thorns put on his head and and beat over and over and over. Willingly went to the scourging where he had 39 lashes that exposed probably every bit of the nerves and, and blood and muscles and bones in his back. Put a coat wrapped over his back, let the blood dry and then ripped off over and over and over as they were making fun of him, calling him the king, right? Crown on his head robe purple do you see the 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 terrifyingly beautiful irony that's going on here you're not our king yet we're going to crucify him as a king and in mockery they placed king of the jews even though they wanted pulled down 
God in his sovereignty said, no, I want the declaration that this truly is the king of the Jews that's being crucified before you by your own people, by his own people. And what was this warfare like? Peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them. Didn't even open his mouth, absent, silent. Warfare, according to man's standards, nowhere to be found. Let me tell you what, that's not what we expected with the Messiah. Jesus the king was not what his people expected because his warfare was absent. Verse eight and nine, also because his execution was undeserved. You don't crucify the Messiah. The Messiah doesn't get crucified. The the Messiah isn't going to die a death like that. Actually, the Messiah is not even going to die. So the very fact that he's even executed and he hangs on a tree, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Eight says this, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. The whole time this is happening, this person is saying, all of my people, or no one's considering that maybe this was the point all along. No, not going through anyone's mind. His whole generation rejecting him. Everyone's seeing what's happening in disbelief. And all of it's doing is confirming in the heart of the person, yep, this is not our Messiah, not our Messiah, not our Messiah. Stricken for the transgression of my people. His execution was undeserved, verse nine. And they made him, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Absolutely innocence. There was nothing that they, there's no act of violence that they could pin on him and there was, there was no words of blasphemy they could pin on him even though they said him declaring himself to be God was blasphemy. That's only blasphemy if it's not true. His execution was undeserved, totally innocent. Now remember, brothers and sisters, we're reading something that happened 700 years before that Jesus came on the scene. Now imagine a Jew reading this, knowing the reports of Jesus and reading this. How does this not cut, cut deep? We as Gentiles, we probably think, man, can't you see it? But we're told in the New Testament that Israel has a veil over their face and Satan has put that there and it is very, very hard for them to believe. They need the veil removed. It is an act of God for any of us to come to the place where we believe in Jesus. None of us will come to a place where we say, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah on our own. Everyone that turns to Jesus and believes, it is shown an act of God working in their heart and God's people are no different. And then when your eyes are opened, you read scripture and you say, these things are obvious and it's beautiful and God only invokes this sense of, of, of wonder and faith building experience over time as you read his word and you see how beautiful he is in his preparations. So the prophecy is that his grave would be made crucified with enemies and grave with rich man. What happened to Jesus? He was buried on rich man's property. This is, not a, this is not normal at all. You don't take criminals who are crucified next to criminals and give them an honorable place of burial. 
right? Another prophecy of the Messiah that you would expect to see. So as you're reading Isaiah 53, you say, well, the Messiah is going to be in some way pierced for our transgressions. How that's going to work? Crucifixion hasn't even been invented yet, but then when it shows up on the scene and you're standing before the Messiah and you see him high and lifted up and he says, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, your mind as a Jew goes back to Psalm 22 and you remember Psalm 22 talked about him being pierced. His hands and his feet being pierced. His mouth being dry. Everyone before him mocking him. This is what Isaiah, this is what Isaiah 53 was talking about and what Psalm 22 was talking about, yet we don't see it, right? Because these things are given to us and discerned by the Spirit. We need God to work in the hearts of all of us. But isn't it wonderful, church, that God has left us such a wonderful revelation that's not cryptic, that's beautifully, poetically crafted, so that when we read back on it, we say, yes, surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows. This is the Messiah. No mistaking it. By the way, it was foretold the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD and is still destroyed today. Who do you know before 70 AD that would have fit any of these descriptions? Only Jesus. But he was rejected because he wasn't expected and it wasn't expected that the, the Messiah would be executed undeservingly. Two more. Not what we expected because his suffering was necessary. The Messiah doesn't have, he doesn't suffer. And then necessary suffering? Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. It's crazy to think about this was God's plan all along, right? An unexpected plan. A plan that, that, that God would want to happen. And what would he want to do? He would want to crush his one and only son whom he loves. Pleased to crush him. Why is God so pleased to do this? It's not because it's sadistic. It's because he loves us so much. And he loves his glory so much. He would rather see us saved than rightly perish. And so he was pleased to watch his son raise up out of the ground as a young shoot, live that perfect life, become a lamb, a lamb representing innocent, be innocent, totally pure, totally perfect, but not an animal, a human. And humans need a perfect human sacrifice and there has never been a perfect, innocent human sacrifice and then one that could actually cover the sins of all humans except God perfect in the flesh dying a death that so under he's so undeserving of suffering so necessarily so purposefully so that you and I could experience salvation his suffering was necessary it says here, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's a hint to the resurrection, right? He's going to die. He's been cut off from the land of the living. But when, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, death, crucifixion, maybe even hinting to the three days where maybe he went to heaven and presented his blood in the heavenly sanctuary, according to Hebrews, his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. He's not, his death isn't going to be final. His days are going to continue forever. You look at Jesus Christ. Is Jesus still living, church? 
Is he seeing his offspring right now? You better believe it. We get to be part of this. We want the world to be part of it. Seeing his offspring right now, thousands of years later on the other side of the world. And it says this, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He is the one who was able to take the plan and the will of the Lord and execute it and it to be successful and victorious, which is our final point here. Jesus the king was not what he expected because his death and his resurrection was victorious. How are you going to bring victory to Israel, to the world, salvation from the Jews to, to Israel itself and to the world? Well, you got to defeat the enemy. You don't die. Yet it was the death in God's way of turning things around and moving it. It was the death of Jesus that bruised his heel but crushed the head of the enemy that was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. After all these years, the Messiah, the rescuer, the Savior had come and defeated the devil once and for all. Verse 11 says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many bear their iniquities. Make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him, Jesus, a portion with the many all of us, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. Philippians, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, our sin, and makes intercession for the transgressor. transgressor. According to Hebrews, we have a mediator between God and man. That is the man, Jesus Christ. First John 2 says, I write these things so you may not sin, but if any of us do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And now we have a mediator and an advocate and a high priest who's able to connect us back to God where that connection had been lost. And no one in any of their strength and in any of their efforts and in any of their religions, any of their idols ever be connected back to God because sin separated us but Jesus' sacrifice has saved us. And now all who call upon the name of the Lord can walk past the torn veil into the Holy of Holies and come boldly to the throne of God to find grace and help in their time of need because we have a mediator with God who's making, making intercession for the transgressors. This is a beautiful story. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ, the unexpected king. Isaiah 53 written 700 years ago from the perspective of someone who would today come to believe in the Messiah, whom they rejected. What would they say? What would fill their mouth? Isaiah 53. Do you see how chilling and goosebumpy this is? Beautiful. You know, a natural question comes to my heart with all of this. Why? God, what are you doing? I see the beauty of it all. And I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says this to the Corinthians who were still stuck in that expectation mind, thinking that a church and being godly is having great gifts and using your gifts above others and making every, everything about them. God says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that human being might, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It took an unexpected king with an unexpected plan to bring unexpected victory. With a clear prophecy written hundreds of years before so God's people would one day see it was the expectation all along. Beautiful irony of our God here in his word as we read the most powerful words ever written by the creator of the universe who has enacted a plan to save you, to forgive you. But he's chosen something that's foolish to the world, something that that exposed our foolish expectations, something so beautiful that only he could do. We would not write this. God chose to send his one and only son into the world to live a very lowly life and to die a very embarrassing, naked painful death because that's what you and I deserved and he rose from the dead and he stands with God today sending his people out into the world to tell them about this unexpected king with an unexpected plan and unexpected victory that's going to come only through Jesus Christ faith alone by his grace you can't help but think of the Old Testament, after the time of the judges, when people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, God raises up Samuel, who was a judge, and he tells Samuel, I'm ready to be the king to the people. I'm their king, go and tell them that. And what's the story? The story is the people said, not good enough. We want a king like all the other kings of the world. Give us that king. And so Samuel goes to God, like pleading, just feeling horrible. And he said, they have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Give them what they want. And so Saul was raised up. And if you know the story, you know Saul was the king of man who ended up rebelling against God. And his blessing and his anointing was taken away from him. And he was cursed and ended up dying very embarrassing death but God had a king it was a lowly shepherd boy 
that was able to, in his lowly, shepherd, seemingly outward, foolish weakness, able to kill a giant that by human standards would be someone we would consider kingly. Cut off his head and displayed it before all the Philistines to see that you do not stand before God. But God is in the business in our own individual lives and even in the grander story of taking the weak and unexpected, lowly things of the world to accomplish his plan. So let me bring it home to you. What is the unexpected thing God's doing in your life that you may be missing because you're too caught up with what you want him to do and what you think he should do? God has given you enough to know that what he wants and what his will is is the absolute best thing for your life. You trust him. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you entrust your soul to a God that is worthy of every ounce of praise and faith we can give him. Let's pray. Father, we are not deserving of your love and your goodness, yet you shower it on us. For all of us in this moment, would you overwhelm our hearts with a love and affection for you and for Jesus? In the areas of our life that still need growth, would you let us feel your patience and your grace over us and you'd begin to motivate us to grow into the image of your son so we can be for the world what he was for us. And in terms of that glorifying and honor you in the purpose and destiny that you've given us to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Father, help us out in the moments where we're still, we're still struggling with that man perspective, that worldly foolishness, still looking for grander things in the world and missing the lowly, grander things that are at your summit and in your son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for your beautiful word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.